This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, November 21st, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. Sentencing reform has languished for years, but there is recent hope that long sentences driven by mandatory minimums may be on the wane. In a recent edition of Cato Connects, Molly Gill of Families Against Mandatory Minimums and Adam Bates of Cato discuss new legislative prospects for criminal justice reform. President Obama has uh, been making a pretty big deal out of the fact that 6,000 inmates are going to be released out of the federal system, but is, it, is that entirely appropriate for the president to be, tr- to be trumping up uh, this release of 6,000 people, Molly? As much as he might like to take credit for um, for this, it was actually an independent bipartisan agency, the U.S. Sentencing Commission, that set this in motion over a year ago. They looked at the uh, sentencing guidelines, which apply in all federal cases, including drug cases, and decided that uh, these sentences had always been actually just a little too high and decided to shorten them. Okay, so of the 6,000 prisoners to be released, many of them are out of prison already and are on some other form of uh, incarceration. And uh, as you know, 600,000 people are returning from state and federal, federal prisons every year. This is a U.S. Sentencing Commission policy that com- is complying with a statutory mandate to do this kind of work. Um, what about Congress having been able to have reversed this policy? Sure. I think some people think that this is the commission going off the reservation and doing something wild and crazy, and it's actually within their mandate. They're supposed to ensure that prison population is managed over the years, and right now we have horrendous overcrowding. So these reductions um, were put through a rulemaking process. There was a notice and comment period for the public to respond. Congress had a six-month window where they could reject what the commission was doing. Congress did nothing. They had no hearings. And so this went into effect, essentially, with no objections from Congress. So who—but there are objections from Congress, some members of Congress. Now, after the fact, what are the, what are the complaints? Well, I think it's uh, fear that uh, you're letting 6,000 dangerous criminals back on the street and they're all going to hurt us. And unfortunately, there's some misinformation that's gotten out there. These are all drug offenders. These aren't bank robbers. These aren't other violent offenders. There are very few violent offenders in the federal system to begin with. These are all drug offenders. They've all been individually vetted by a court before they got out. And you can only get out early if the court says that you're not a public safety risk. Also, they're only getting about, on average, two years knocked off of their sentences, which means they've still done about nine years in prison on average. And all of these people were coming home anyway. It's something that, that, that you note here, and Adam, feel free to join, jump in. If there are 2.3 million people in state and federal prison in the United States of America right now, you say that 600,000 people are returning home Every single year. Every single year. That's 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 almost mind-boggling in terms of the churn mm-hmm. uh, in state and federal prisons. Absolutely. I mean, 6,000 is a drop in the bucket. Actually, a third of these people, 2,000 of them, have already been sent over to ICE for deportation. So we're really talking about 4,000 people trickling back home, being spread out over 50 states. Uh, the biggest recipient of these returning citizens will be Texas. They're getting about 350 people. Um, heading back to Texas borders. So I think that this 6,000 release has been hyped up as uh, something that is not quite as frightening as some would maybe like it to be. When I think, uh, Molly can correct me if I'm wrong, but the reason it's 6,000 in this bulk is because 
when the Sentencing Commission made the reform retroactive, there was a mandatory one-year uh, buffer between, uh, between the release. So nobody could be released until November 1st of this year. And so the reason it's 6,000 rather than a, a steady supply is because there was this hard deadline. Otherwise, many of these people would have already been released and the releases would have been more spread out. So I don't think it's gonna be this kind of bulk release. Uh, but as Molly mentioned, it's not really even a bulk release spread out over the entire country. Right. And it's also not uh, taking people out of prison and dropping them on a curb in the middle of America somewhere, too. All of these people have already spent months in halfway houses or on home arrest, making that slow transition that's supervised back into the community. All of these people are going to have lengthy periods of supervised release where they have to report to a probation officer, sometimes for years even when they are out of that halfway house or home confinement. So certainly we are going to be keeping tabs on these people. Now there are, uh, as I understand it, four major pieces of legislation that are, that could be the sentencing reform, but it's most likely going to be uh, the Grassley reform in the Senate and in the House, who is it? It's Chairman Bob Goodlatte from Virginia of the House Judiciary Committee just introduced um, the Sentencing Reform Act, um, which is uh, essentially identical uh, to the Senate uh, bill put forward by Senator Grassley from Iowa, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, we are expecting the House Judiciary Committee to mark up Mr. Goodlatte's bill uh, as early as next week. And, uh, you know, both of these bills would uh, are, are a good first step, uh, certainly could go a lot further. Okay. So uh, of the other people who have been pushing this issue, uh, Durbin of Illinois, Lee of Utah, uh, Rand Paul of Kentucky, and is Pat, Pat Leahy? Uh, Pat Leahy of Vermont, Vermont are as the, well. Are some of the other folks that have been pushing mm -hmm. this, as well as uh, Jim Sensenbrenner mm -hmm. and Bobby Scott, also in the House. All, all of these are a Democrat and a Republican. Right deciding to get together to do this sort of thing. But in terms of the, the bills that are have the most juice, or I should say have the most committee chairman uh, signed on to them, uh, talk about the sentencing reform in, in both of those bills. Sure. Um, both bills um, would reduce probably the what I would say are the harshest of the mandatory minimums. So right now there's a mandatory life without parole for a third drug offense. That gets knocked down to 25 years. There's 20 years for a second drug offense. That goes down to 15 years. Uh, there are a few gun possession offenses that carry very long mandatory minimums. Those are being cut. But no mandatory minimums are being eliminated. Everyone is still going to prison. Uh, some of the other reforms include um, giving judges some more flexibility in the drug uh, mandatory sentencing context to go below the mandatory minimum for nonviolent offenders with minimal criminal records. And uh, so that's a positive development. It's restoring some more flexibility to the courts uh, in a system that really has been co-opted by prosecutors able to charge mandatory minimums for the last 30 years. All right. Uh, it, uh, this, the, in both bills, it would retroactively apply the Fair Sentencing Act to current inmates. What does that mean? Sure. Back in 2010, Congress fixed um, really sort of a nonsensical distinction in federal law between uh, crack cocaine and powder cocaine, which are chemically the same drug. Um, essentially, you needed a very tiny amount of crack cocaine, very large amount of powder cocaine. You got the same mandatory minimum sentence. Congress sort of recognized... And they appeal to different income cohorts. We'll put it that way, because it, it, it crack cocaine is, is generally a, a cheap drug, and powder cocaine is generally a very expensive drug. Sure. And, of course, there's some racial disparity that was resulting as well from, from that uh, price distinction. 
And, um, you know, at one point, nearly 90 percent of crack cocaine offenders were African-American and getting these much, much longer sentences. So Congress uh, reduced that uh, disparity in the drug weights. And uh, the problem was they, they forgot that everyone was already in prison uh, doing these unfair sentences. So now they're going to go back, fix that, allow these people to go back and get the crack cocaine sentences they really should have gotten back in 2010. Okay. If you've got questions for uh, Adam Bates or Molly Gill, you can tweet those using the hashtag Cato Connects, and we'll get to those questions uh, as soon as we can. Now, uh, there are differences between the, the bills in the Senate and the House. What is just in the Senate bill? Sure. The Senate bill also includes a large prison reform component, uh, which is very important to Senator John Cornyn, uh, Senator uh, Sheldon Whitehouse. Again, this you know right-left agreement. Essentially, this would create more programming in prisons to help prisoners rehabilitate themselves. It would allow some prisoners, not all, but some, to complete these programs and get um, time credits that, at the end of their sentences, they could cash in for uh, time on a different form of confinement. So less time in a prison cell, more time in a halfway house or on home arrest, home confinement. Um, there's also some components that would restore juvenile parole uh, for certain juvenile offenders and allow some juvenile offenders to um, uh, get their records expunged and uh, you know put their youthful indiscretions behind them. Now, what does that mean for a young person? I mean, in general, a, a felony conviction or something, what does that mean for a young person to have that that go away? It means a lot. It could mean, I mean, the burdens of having a felony conviction are enormous. Um, it can make it harder for you to get into college, can make it hard for you to, hard or impossible for you to get college scholarships. Uh, it can, of course, make it very difficult for you to get employment. Um, later on, you can have trouble getting housing, certain federal benefits if you have a felony record. Uh, really, the consequences of having a felony record go on and on and on throughout the course of one's life. All right, Adam Bates, on, uh, you know, we, people are talking about, we talk about federal reform a lot, but the overwhelming majority of prisoners uh, in the United States are at the state level. So what have states been doing in the last, in the recent years to sort of deal with the fact that there have been these substantial problems with overcrowding and, uh, and long sentences? Well, we're starting to see, uh, as you said, most, most, the vast majority of people in prison or jail are at the state level. Uh, in the past few years, we have seen uh, reform efforts in some somewhat surprising places like Texas. Uh, where I believe they don't have mandatory minimums at the state level in Texas, and, and they've been able to reduce their population. You've also seen uh, the recategorization recategor of felonies to misdemeanors uh, in places like California that has led to drastic reductions uh, in the prison population. And uh, in several states, you're starting to see a movement in favor of, of drug legalization, which is, of course, something that, that Cato and, and libertarians have supported uh, for a long time to, to try and limit uh, the number of people who are going into prison in the first place to, to kind of short circuit these back end problems that you have uh, with what to do with them uh, while they're in and, and once they get out. Is there a partisan breakdown to uh, those state level reforms? That is to say, states that are uh, very democratic or very republican, are they 
is one state or another more likely to engage in that kind of reform? Uh, not that not that I've seen. I, I think regardless of your political philosophy, uh, everybody kind of agrees there's a problem here, and that's why we're seeing the bipartisan efforts at, at the federal level, and uh, we're also seeing bipartisan efforts at the state level. For instance, uh, New Mexico has abolished civil asset forfeiture, which is a very abusive uh, law enforcement program. That passed unanimously in, in New Mexico, uh, 98 to nothing uh, through the legislature and was signed by the Republican government. Governor. And as I said, Texas is kind of a bellwether Republican state where you're seeing these criminal justice reforms and you have organizations like uh, Right on Crime and the uh, Texas policy people doing that work. And then California is a, is a bellwether uh, liberal democratic state. So whether you're looking at this as a budget issue, as a liberty issue, as a, as a social justice issue, I, I think the, the requisite foundation is there for reform uh, regardless of who you are. Let's talk about mens rea. A little bit because that's something that um, does have a component where there are groups of people that are aligned uh, ideologically who do and do not want to see that kind of reform of a requirement of a knowledge that what you're doing is illegal mm -hmm. which is like that's the that to me that's the foundation of of criminal <laughs> law but so uh, where are we seeing that and what has brought that issue what's made that an issue well, I think it's uh, been the involvement of a, a lot of different groups. Um, probably the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers has actually been sort of holding the torch on this the longest. And recognizing that there are a lot of laws, um, whether they're actually in the statutory code or they're regulations set by a regulatory agency and not by Congress, where people either, there is no intent requirement, people don't know. Uh, what the intent requirement is. And sometimes people are breaking the law without realizing they're actually breaking the law. And there's a, a criminal penalty attached to this, and it's a regulation you don't even know exists. And that's a big concern to um, many Republican members of Congress. Um, Bob Goodlatte you know, is, um, I'm told, uh, planning on introducing his own mens rea bill um, in the House. Um, Senator Hatch, uh, Orrin Hatch from Utah in the Senate, has his, uh, his mens rea fix to this. And um, these bills would generally create a, a default uh, standard um, so that when there is that vagueness, there's something uh, to go back to and have a level of, of culpability uh, so that people aren't unknowingly breaking the law and getting punished for it. All right. Any thoughts on mens rea? Well, I, I agree with you that this historically this is a foundation of the law, that in order for there to be a crime, there, there has to be a, a guilty mind uh, and a guilty act. Uh, there are far too many laws, and it's far too easy for people to get caught up uh, in this system uh, through no fault of their own, really. Uh, two good examples, at least in the, this is in the gun context, but Brian Aitken and uh, Shanine Allen. Uh, Shanine Allen was a, a single mother from, from uh, Philadelphia. She had a concealed carry permit. Uh, she drove across into New Jersey under the impression that her concealed carry permit was, she didn't have to get a new driver's license to go across the border. Uh, and she was arrested there and, and sentenced and, and convicted. Uh, even as somebody who's interested in, in firearms and as a lawyer, uh, I have trouble navigating these laws when I try to figure out what uh, crimes are in various places. And we have a, a serious mens rea problem in this country where we have this kind of uh, 
one size fits all. And this is especially a problem with mandatory minimums as well, where we we have we go after this kind of u uniform justice system to, to remove discretion from the situation. But when you do that, you have people get caught up in this who who shouldn't be there and who the laws were never intended for. Now, uh, your organization, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, of course, there are no elimination of mandatory minimums in the legislation that is most likely to uh, become law uh, this year, next year, or, or 2017. But let's talk about what the how mandatory minimums actually function within the context of a prosecution. Mm -hmm. What does a mandatory minimum do to the defense? What does it do for prosecutors? And how does it alter how juries do their jobs? Mm -hmm. Well, a mandatory minimum essentially shifts all the power, uh, all the sentencing power from the judge over to the prosecutor. And it literally turns your prosecutor into your judge, jury, and executioner. The prosecutor goes into a closed room, it's not a public process, and he decides what to charge you with. And that can include a very harsh mandatory minimum sentence, which means that right there, your prosecutor has also chosen your punishment. When you go to court, the prosecutor will often say, this is what I've charged you with, and if you don't play ball with me, if you don't turn in other people to me, this is what you're gonna face. Now, there is uh, certainly nothing wrong with people pleading guilty and confessing that what they're doing, but there's a fine line between cooperation and coercion, and mandatory minimums can lead to abusive government power. Uh, mandatory minimums also, if you are, if you do plead guilty, if you are convicted, um, now this judge is faced with, I have to give you 10 years. And it doesn't matter if that 10 years is nonsense and makes no sense and doesn't fit your crime. It doesn't matter if um, there is a mens rea issue in the case and maybe you didn't actually do what they say you intended to do. Now you are going to prison for five years, 10 years, 20 years, life without parole even for, for drug offenses, for nonviolent drug offenses. It's where they're most often used. They're often used in the gun possession context as well. All right, and when we talk about that, Weldon Angelos is the case that uh, has been highlighted several times. Mm -hmm. This is somebody who, uh, because he possessed a gun during a drug crime, didn't use the gun, mm -hmm. didn't brandish the gun, but he had it. Mm -hmm. And that's what uh, contributed so great to, so mightily to his sentence. Mm -hmm. Yes, Weldon uh, sold marijuana three times in a short period of time to an undercover officer. Um, he, the first time he had a gun in an ankle holster, um, didn't use or fire it or point it at anybody. Uh, the second time, uh, the gun was left in his car uh, during the sale. The third time happened when they came to his house to arrest him and they found guns locked in his safe. Um, Weldon, lifelong gun enthusiast, target shooter, um, and he ended up getting five years for that first gun, plus an additional 25 for the second, plus 25 for the third, 55 years total, uh, first-time offender. His judge was so upset by this that he gave him just a day for the marijuana charges and uh, wrote a 97-page opinion saying, I would have given more time to a terrorist, a child rapist, an airline hijacker than I have given to this young man. In, in the context of uh, how prosecutors and defense attorneys do their jobs, plea bargaining is overwhelmingly popular. Uh, as, as I understand, like 3% of cases go to trial. That's correct. Criminal cases go to trial. Uh, how do mandatory minimums actually figure into that process? 
Well, I think prosecutors would tell you we need mandatory minimums to get guilty pleas. But actually, that tune is starting to change, even at the Department of Justice. Uh, the Deputy Attorney General, Sally Yates, who oversees all the trial prosecutors, recently said, you know what? We actually don't need mandatory minimums to get people to plead guilty. Guess what? Pretty much everybody pleads guilty all the time, no matter what you're charged with. And that's true. Plea rates are very high, 97 percent or above, pretty much across the board in the federal system. And they're very similar in state systems. And I think that shows you, uh, that says a lot about how harsh our, our sentencing has become um, in the federal system. It's basically go to jail, go directly to jail. You're not going to get probation, except in a very tiny sliver of cases. Um, people uh, plead guilty because they are guilty. They plead guilty because they can't afford to fight the system. They plead guilty because um, they are looking at just such a tremendous amount of prison time. It doesn't matter if there's a mandatory minimum or not. Right. And, and uh, yeah, I think the prosecutors are often overlooked when it comes to things like mass incarceration and, and how we ended up here. I, I do think the drug war is a part. Uh, sentencing is a part. But mandatory minimums did. Uh, I don't think this was the intent of mandatory minimums. The idea was to uh, take some of the uh, discretion out of the justice system and have a uniform system. But because of how this j criminal justice system actually works, it, it then became incumbent on the prosecutor to decide what to charge you with, and th therefore they could determine your sentence instead of having the legislature do it. Uh, so it was another lever for the prosecutor, uh, but we already have a very, uh, what I would call a coercive uh, plea bargaining system. So I think you're right, that even in the absence of mandatory minimums, uh, we would still have a plea bargaining problem, we would still have a problem of uh, overwhelming uh, frac uh, majority of, of criminal defendants waiving their rights to trial uh, in exchange for, uh, for a lower sentence. Uh, so, so yes, I, I think the mandatory minimums uh, played a big part in, in, in boosting the leverage that prosecutors have in this process. All right. So, at, at, again, at the uh, at the state level, are, are where do mandatory minimums stand for the broad uh, range of states? Well, I think we're in the middle of an ongoing rejection of these laws across the country. And there are a number of red states that have done multiple reforms recently to either um, eliminate these mandatory minimums entirely or to create exceptions to mandatory minimums that restore flexibility to judges. So Georgia, for example, has done several batches of um, safety valve reforms that these are exceptions that give judges flexibility around mandatory minimums. Um, Maryland just passed one. Oklahoma just passed one. Um, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a sort of conservative group that FAM is a part of, um, you know, they've adopted a model safety valve that has been promoted in, in many states across the country. Um, Pennsylvania right now is in the middle of sort of reassessing its mandatory minimums because they all got struck down as being unconstitutional. And uh, FAM's working there to sort of uh, remind them, you know what, you don't have to have mandatory minimums. And in fact, your your sentencing commission has said you shouldn't. So let's just not readopt them. And we are uh, working in the state legislature there on that. So I think, again, sort of a, you know, blue states, red states, purple states, um, 30 states have reformed their mandatory minimum sentencing laws in the last 10 years. And in all of those states, crime has continued to go down. So we are learning we don't need mandatory minimums to be safe. All right. Uh, on the on the issue of marijuana and drug crime generally at the state level, have uh, substances other than marijuana been receiving 
reduced penalties for people who are convicted of possessing or dealing them? Well, I do st think we're starting to see a push in this direction, especially when it comes to to heroin. Uh, you, you, will, you will often hear about this heroin epidemic that uh, could have something to do with, with government crackdowns on, on pain management doctors. But I think people are starting uh, there are so many people who have been put through the criminal justice process as a result of the drug war that uh, virtually everybody knows somebody who's been part of this process. It's, mm -hmm. it's starting to uh, affect uh, a much wider range of, of communities. This is especially true of, of this uh, rise in heroin use. So yes, I, I think we're going to start hopefully seeing some, some pushback. Uh, probably not legalization is probably too optimistic. Uh, on things like cocaine and heroin, although the same logic applies to that, that applies to the argument for the legalization of marijuana, but and, and arguably stronger, depending right. on, on what you're. How and you're especially at. yes, as far as neutralizing uh, the incentives for the cartels and and correcting problems in the criminal justice system, but the the heartening thing is that we're having these conversations. You can talk about uh, reducing penalties for cocaine and heroin. You can talk about legal legalization uh, in serious company and have a serious discussion about. This, where only a few years ago, I, I don't think there could be, uh, could have been a serious discussion about this. What has changed in states like Colorado and um, Washington and now Oregon and Alaska and uh, the other, and Washington, D.C.? What has changed with respect to uh, marijuana and crime and crimes that are often associated with drugs? Well, it's, it's a little too early to tell in some areas, such as such as D.C. and and D.C. has kind is in kind of a regulatory limbo because of some federal uh, congressional intervention by the uh, Republican Party, interestingly, to to kind of meddle in in D.C. pot legalization. But at least in Colorado, which uh, legalization went into effect January first, twenty fourteen, uh, there have been drops in pro there have been a, a substantial drop in marijuana crime, obviously, but there have been drops in property crimes, violent crimes, traffic fatalities. Uh, it's been a, a huge boost uh, to the revenue of the state and the uh, predictions of a gigantic spike in use uh, simply haven't come true. There has been observed in surveys uh, a, a modest increase in admitted pot use, but uh, it's always difficult to tell with polls. Uh, I think people are people may be more likely to admit to doing something that once it's legal uh, than admit to doing an illegal drug. So. Uh, the the concerns of of the drug warriors have not come to pass in any of these places. There's no serious movement to go back, uh, which I think is probably the best indicator uh, of how it's worked. Is that there, there's no serious push to undo uh, the legalization efforts in these places. Uh, legalization recently failed in Ohio, but uh, there's a lot of reasons to think that had more to do with the cronyist regulatory framework than the, than, the, uh, than the merits of the issue itself. But this is something that's going to keep moving. Uh, states like uh, California, Nevada, New York, Massachusetts, uh, in the next uh, four or five years, we're going to see a lot of states uh, go down the legalization route, and that's, that's very uh, heartening. Molly Gill is Government Affairs Counsel at Families Against Mandatory Minimums, and Adam Bates is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and watch our other events at Cato.org.